Mugabe's under house arrest in Zimbabwe, but what happens next? A Lib Dem heavyweight criticises government defence spending. Although there are increases in the defence budget, they are simply inadequate to ensure that we maintain the full spectrum of capability which we've come to expect. And is Lebanon the new centre for war in the Middle East? It's real, guys. Military police and a tank. This is happening in Harare. We are going to have a good life now. We can look forward to Christmas. I want to thank this general for removing this tyrant. He was ruling the country as if it belonged to his family. People are still in a panic mode and trying to figure out how this is going to play out in the next few days. So the generals have said enough's enough. They will not allow Grace Mugabe to be the next president of Zimbabwe. She and her husband, Robert Mugabe, remain under house arrest in the capital, Harare. So what happens next? Dr Hazel Cameron joins us from the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me as ever in the studio. Hello to both of you. Well, not much public reaction. People seem to think it's the start of a new era, is it? I think at the moment... um what, what we saw in the streets yesterday was a mixture of, um, sort of tension, anxiety, but also excitement. There's excitement on the streets that this could be a new era. It could be a, you know, a, a turn for the change. There's going to be um, a nice new positive uh, Zimbabwe because I mean, at the moment it's um, on the cusp of being a failed state. What uh, my opinion is, is that people are sitting back patiently and waiting to see what is going to come of this transition. I don't think that we can guarantee that the, there's um, not still the potential for there to be uh, unrest on the streets, for there to, to be uh, political violence in the future if the transition doesn't suit the people. Having said that, Dr Cameron, at this moment of talking, Robert Mugabe says he's not going. Well, I think uh, I don't think anyone's particularly clear at this moment in time as to the situation with uh, Robert Mugabe. As you know, the commander of the uh, Defence Forces, um, Major um, Chawenga, he has uh, stopped short of calling what's taken place uh, a coup. And there's obvious reasons for that, which we, we might have time to, to go into later. Um, if it is the case that uh, Mugabe's under house arrest, as has been the, the news that's come out, uh, I don't think that he's really in any position to dictate whether he is going to either resign or give a you know a, a letter of resignation, or to demand that he goes uh, takes his seat back as president of Zimbabwe. And and the man the army wants to take over, the former vice president Emerson Mnangagwa. He's not called the crocodile for nothing, is he? No, he's he's not. Um, Emerson Mangangwa, he has got a long history. In fact, he's got a long history with the British government um, being the Minister of State Security in 1980 when the Lancaster House Agreement brought independence to Zimbabwe. And so Emerson Mangangwa actually played a, a significant role in in working alongside the British military advisory training team of BMA in Zimbabwe and bringing together the warring factions of the Rhodesian Front and the two nationalist guerrilla forces. 
He's been a strong ally and really worked side by side with Mugabe throughout the last 37 years. And there's substantial evidence to indicate that he is um, as cruel and as uh, as much as a dictator um, as Mugabe. There's um, substantial research to indicate that he's been involved in the um, theft of diamonds from the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2004 and a 2012 report from Global Witness highlights how both Mangangwa and the person who has led this coup in Zimbabwe, Chiwenga, how the two of them have worked together as allies and colleagues in the, the diamond field um, looting. Um, and so it's worrying that, uh, to my mind, it's worrying that Mangangwa, who's also played a significant role in the manipulation of the elections in Zimbabwe through the years, most importantly, and what my research has revealed, is his role in crimes against humanity. Um, some would go so far as describing his genocide in Matabililand in the 1980s, um, when 20,000 people were murdered uh, in the most dreadful circumstances, and hundreds of thousands of people uh, were tortured. Mangangwa was the architect of those crimes in Matabililand, and those crimes have never been addressed. There's been no accountability and no justice. And so those who remain discriminated against, marginalised, who've been stigmatised as a result of the crimes that have been committed by Mangangwa are not going to be happy if he does take on the um, the role of president. Indeed, Christopher Lee, as I said, our defence analyst has been listening to this. Christopher, Britain's been strangely quite silent on all of this, hasn't it? Uh, Britain's got a, a great history about being silent on, on what was going on, but it is it's interesting that Prime Minister says uh, we want some sort of democratic solution, etc., which is wishful thinking. Um, I remember uh, Mangangwa because um, it was my first job I ever had, and that was the that was the uh, uh, the talks to bring about independence. And I had to draw up a list of people that we really ought to take note and who would, who would be at Lancaster House. And in in, in order of importance, Abel Mazarway and Ndabenegisitoli, Joshua Nkomo, and the last was Robert Gabriel Mugabe, and Mangangwa. And I remember saying to somebody on uh, Peter Carrington's uh, team. Uh, what do I make about this man? They said, oh, don't worry, he probably won't turn up. And there was the example, hmm. remember, the one that we didn't believe would actually come out on top was Robert Mugabe. Hmm. And there is what we see at the moment, the, the consequence of a, of a, of a colonial uh, war and constitutional. It's the man in the bush who is the man with the gun. And Mangangwa is still the man psychologically in the bush with the gun, and as you know, what we're saying about the, the deaths of the in and the Matabila and in the end, and it wasn't don't forget, wasn't white and black that caused the great schism in Rhodesia itself. It was black against uh, black. It was the Matabili and Shona, and that is not to be forgotten. And nothing has changed today. Dr. Hazel Cameron, um, you said earlier that people in Zimbabwe are just waiting and watching to see what will happen. What do you think, I know it's almost impossible to say, what, what do you think will happen next? Um, I just, I mean, as you've just said, yeah, it's impossible to, to actually um, predict what's going to happen. I think that there's, um, there are a variety of scenarios. And there's been suggestions to me from various organisations and from individuals that there is a potential for a civil war 
that uh, there's been allegations, and I, I can't confirm uh, the veracity of these allegations, but allegations that there are arms cached and that people have been trained and that steps will be taken if the, the, the new government in Zimbabwe don't address these harms and these crimes from, from the, the past. So for me, um, the international community have to pay attention to this, uh, not just the um, Western governments, but also the governments of uh, the regional governments, governments that border uh, Zimbabwe and want to have peace and stability uh, in Southern Africa. They have to give consideration to addressing those those issues from the past and ensuring that for the first time that there is justice and accountability so that the country can move forward. Dr Hazel Cameron from the University of St Andrews, thank you for joining us today. Still to come, is Lebanon once again to become a battleground for control of the Middle East? And Joyce Lofthouse, the last lady of the Second World War skies, has died. The government has come under fire for cutting into the very bones of British defence capability. The warning comes from the former Liberal Democrat leader and now Lib Dem spokesman on defence, Lord Campbell. It follows concerns by retired senior general Sir Richard Barons that Britain's defences are close to breaking point without more investment. They are simply not going to be able to close uh, the circle that defence is close to breaking and unless you put more money in it, it will fall over, and that does not fit the risk the country is now running. And no matter how people dress it up, that is the issue you're confronted with. Well, earlier Lord Campbell told me his main concerns. Well, my concerns are exactly the same as that that we've just heard about. The fact of the matter is that although there are increases in the defence budget, they are simply inadequate to ensure that we maintain the full spectrum of capability which we've come to expect. And, of course, not only have we expected that, so too has the United States. Hence the fact that a very senior uh, American general just a few days ago intervened to say that if we went on the way we are going, then we would be less able to fulfill our international responsibilities. And they say that, of course, the Americans out of self-interest, because we are always their ally of first call. And if we're not up to it, then they will feel that their overall capability is being affected. But is it simply about throwing more money at it, or should things be done differently? Well, probably a combination of both. But let me give you an illustration. Um, we're about, it is alleged, to sell HMS Albion, which is the ship which allows amphibious landings. We're also, we're told, liable to see a reduction in the Royal Marines. Now, that is a very substantial impact upon a capability which could be very, very important for us, remembering always that we do have overseas territories for which we have responsibility to protect. Having said that, if cuts do have to be made, where would you make them to the armed forces? Uh, well, I don't have all the information. Uh, I'm not privy to all of the arguments, but what I do believe is this, uh, that, first of all, so far as the Navy is concerned, we cannot operate on the number of surface vessels which are being proposed. As far as the army is concerned, the issue which uh, generals like uh, Sir Richard Barron have raised is the hollowing out. On, on the face of it, there are structures, but what's absent is resilient. And that's why, when we were, if you go back to 2010, when the coalition government was formed, 
they had what they called a defense review. I happen to know that the defense review then amounted to them being told, this is the amount of, amount of money you've got. Go away and fix the defense policy within the financial envelope. Mm. That's not the way in which to do this. What you need if you're going to have a defense review is to set out your political objectives to analyze the military means which will be necessary to help you and then to provide the money in order to meet both the military means and the political objectives. For too long, we've looked at this the wrong way around, the wrong end of the telescope. But there isn't a bottomless pit of money, is there? No, there isn't. But the British public expect uh, our armed forces not just to be on parade at Trooping of the Colour or things of that kind. They expect us to have a capability. And if we're not going to have that capability, then we may have to be honest and say, look, we're no longer able to do the kind of things we could do in the past. And there's an immediate problem, too, which is this, that if you reduce your capability, if you reduce your resilience, that's to say your ability, if, 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 if you mount some kind of expeditionary operation to sustain that, then the number of choices available to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet will inevitably be reduced. And that could well have a very serious impact on foreign policy and our foreign policy objectives. Of course, it's natural for the different forces and the different departments within government to fight their corner for money. How much of a risk is what you're seeing with defence to our security? Well, it's difficult to characterise it, but what I think one's entitled to say is if you don't maintain the full spectrum that of capability which we have in the past, then you have to adjust your political objectives and that inevitably seems to me to be likely to reduce our influence. Now, as it happens, I'm someone who believes very, very strongly that we should be part of the European Union. I am what those on the other side of the argument call a Ramona. I'm quite happy to wear that badge as it happens. Um, and we will, as a consequence, uh, find that although our position in NATO will be, uh, which is the primary source of our defence, uh, will be the same as it always has been. In relation to Europe, circumstances will be different. And that's why I'm strongly of the view that we should go into this looking not at the 2%. I mean, the 2% is now regarded as some, some kind of totem pole. It's a minimum. Mm. It was never designed to be a maximum. It's a minimum. And if our overseas responsibilities and our commitments to the United Nations, to NATO and to the extent that we do some make some arrangement with the Europeans exceed 2%, then we should be willing to make that money available. You said this week that uh, the government is cutting into the very bones of our defence capability. How reduced do you think Britain's resilience is? Well, again, it depends on what you ask the forces to do. I mean, for example, some people may say, well, just as well, there's no question of an Iraq or an Afghanistan or something of that kind. I've heard um, it being suggested that we could put a brigade in for six months, something like that. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing which the Americans would regard uh, as not being a sufficient contribution to their overall effort. Remember that the Americans, as I've said already, they regard the United Kingdom as their ally of first choice. And if we're not there in a sufficiently capable role, then they will have to find other ways to fulfill their responsibilities. 
That was Lord Campbell, the Lib Dem spokesman on defence. Well, let's talk to Professor Trevor Taylor, Research Fellow in Defence Industries and Society at the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Professor Taylor. Are we seeing proper concern here or are we seeing the usual ex-chiefs gathering together, uh, to, uh, talking about their individual services and vying for them? No, I think it is a very serious situation. In fact, the MOD itself has agreed. I mean, the, the Permanent Secretary has gone on record as saying that in order to execute the defence plans it stands, the MOD needs to make efficiency savings of £20 billion over the next decade. Now, <coughs> that um, just goes to show, really, that the, that the ministry really is, is, is extremely short of funding and is looking for every way to save money. It does look like there is a mismatch be- between the defence policy and the money being put behind it. How can you balance it? Well, it, I, I think you either change the policy, as, as your previous speaker just indicated, you either change the policy or change the money. What do you think uh, should happen? <clears throat> well, I'd, I think you know people uh, like ourselves that sit in, in uh, as defence analysts, we have to be quite careful between distinguishing uh, recommendations on policy and recommendations on... Uh, if you like, forced development. But as things stand, the UK has a very ambitious defence policy, an independent nuclear deterrent, commitments to NATO, commitments to be able to act out of area on a substantial scale, uh, even on, on, on the global scale. So we have a very ambitious defence policy to be an international player. And I don't think all those things are feasible when you're just willing to spend 2% of a GDP that is the size of that of the UK. And this is, not, this is, this is a particularly serious part of the uh, point in the problem, but it's been a problem for a long time that governments have had, wanted to have more ambitious defence policies than they were willing to pay for. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here in the studio. Christopher, how long, how far back do you remember there being these kind of arguments about defence spending? Well, certainly since uh, post-war, post-Second World War, I, mean, I don't remember them, but if you look, you'll see the same sort of arguments. And look, they're based on certain things. One, ideally, you're a government. You decide what you want your international policy to be. And therefore, you want to know what guarantees your forces are needed or what forces are needed to guarantee those policies. Now, if you can do that, you live in an ideal world. Second part of it is, quite often you think, well, we can't, for example, as Ming Campbell was saying, you never know what you're going to ask the forces to do. But realistically, quite often the forces that you've got generally are ones that you can use for all sorts of contributions or, or, or single objects, objectives, as, for example, 1982, recovering the, uh, recovering the Falklands. That's an, an exceptional uh, task you're asking the forces mm. to do. And so I... I, I what, what, so what we come back to, and what we should come back to, is about something much simpler. What if we didn't do what we think we would like to do now? What could we imagine the British forces and British defence policy, therefore British foreign policy, to look like, mm. let us say, after in five, ten years' time down the line? Because that's the minimum it time yes. it takes to actually change the course of how you produce and structure your British forces. Professor Trevor Taylor, how much of this mismatch between what the military might be capable of and the funding behind it and what it's expected to do is put down to the emergence of new threats, which is often quoted by officials? Well, uh, that's clearly a point. I mean, if if we'd had a more cooperative Russia uh, instead of the the kind of developments that we've seen in the Ukraine and elsewhere, that would have eased, you know, many concerns because basically the armed forces are torn between 
uh, figuring out how to deter you know peers like like Russia mm-hmm. and and, and uh, to a certain extent some other major countries but how to and and at the same time as trying to work out how best to prepare better for uh, counterinsurgency operations and other uh, uh- less state-on-state things. And, and also throw into the mix the post-Brexit scenario, because next month European meeting in, on a meeting on Euro defence will exclude the United Kingdom. Britain's having to think of perhaps a post-Brexit defence policy as well. Well, I think, you know, the, uh, it, it's now, I, I think, widely acknowledged that the Brexit vote uh, caused the devaluation of the pound, which through a significant spanner into the MOD's financial works because they have commitments to buy quite a lot of American equipment Mm. and the spending power, the impact of the Brexit vote would reduce the spending power of the MOD drastically. Now, it's not just that. The the government has made very clear that it wants to pay a full part in European security debates and to make a full contribution to European security. How that will work out as the Brexit negotiations unfold if they unfold as it were and uh, and how how uh, you know UK's voice in Europe will be heard in the security space we're yet to see but it's obviously going to be less than it was before it can't easily be more okay we'll return to this subject I'm sure again Professor Trevor Taylor from the United Services Institute thank you for your time today now, uh, could Lebanon be about to get drawn in yet again to another war in the Middle East? Shiite Iran and sunny Saudi Arabia are already fighting in Yemen. Both have fought a proxy war in Syria. Uma Karim is a specialist in Saudi politics from the University of Birmingham and joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Uma. Uh, the latest twist is the resignation of Saad Hariri, who is Lebanon's pro-Saudi prime minister. He's taken refuge in the Saudi capital, Riyadh, leading many Middle East analysts to believe that his resignation was ordered by the Saudis. Is Saudi Arabia deliberately setting up Lebanon as a proxy war ground against Iran? Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I think uh, the Saudis are now very much clear that Lebanon is a lost case. So they are treating uh, Lebanon as um, a war zone, practically, a political war zone uh, in the broader rivalry with Iran. And especially the involvement of Hezbollah in Yemen, uh, as they are being, uh, they are becoming uh, trainers and uh, facilitators for the Yemeni Houthi rebels, that has practical implications for Saudi security in Yemen, and this is uh, a point which is which is non-negotiable for the Saudis. And on the other hand, the events in Iraq and Syria recently, where the Iraqi um, Shia militias, and on the other hand. Uh, Hezbollah in Syria, they have uh, their forces have joined with each other on the Iraqi and Syrian border, and they are squeezing ISIS gradually. So this actually, if you look in the broader picture, the Shiite uh, crescent in the Middle East is practically forming now. So from Iran to Iraq to Syria and to Lebanon, and the Saudis just can't wait and see this to happen. They gave Saad al-Hariri a chance when he formed this uh, unity government with um, Hezbollah uh, to to exercise his influence and uh, to cut out Hezbollah as much as he can. But it looks like that after one year, Hariri has failed utterly to deliver in any form. So the statement of Saudi Minister for Gulf, Tamar al-Shaban, after two days of Hariri's resignation is very important, where he uh, categorically said that we 
will consider now any actions uh, from the Lebanese government as uh, a declaration of war on Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So practically the distinction between the Lebanese government and Hezbollah is no more there. And they want this to be very clear. And how do you think that the emergence of the crown prince in Saudi Arabia is going to perhaps accelerate an already delicate situation? I think uh, the crown prince is uh, all in all and totally in charge of every kind of policy making in the kingdom. And he and his close group of uh, advisors think that Iran has to be challenged wherever possible in the Middle East. And uh, they cannot just let, uh, uh, they cannot just wait and see uh, in terms of Lebanon to just fall into the lap of uh, Iran. And also, uh, they can, and while they are supporting one of the Lebanese factions. So, definitely, the Crown Prince uh, policy uh, behavior is uh, very much uh, there on the whole landscape of Middle East and is, uh, and will definitely affect mm. the events. And, and the, on the whole landscape of the Middle East, we see a re repetition of this constant war between Sunnis and Shiites. Um, what's the end game? Can you ever see resolution in any of this? Well, um, with the rise of ISIS, of course, and other actors, and of course the Syrian civil war, the sectarianization of Middle Eastern power conflict uh, became very apparent and became very, in other words, crude. But now the Saudis' end game is to limit Iranian power wherever they can. So it is very interesting that they are engaging with the Iraqi government, which is, uh, of course, headed by a Shiite party, a Shiite bloc. Uh, so they are, they are, their um, strategy is not uh, very sectarian-oriented. They are using Shiite forces to block Iran where they can do this. And on the other hand, they are, of course, using Sunni forces or secular nationalistic forces mm. uh, in any other point where they can limit um, the Iranian influence. Mm. Uh, Uma Karim from the University of Birmingham. There we must leave it for the moment. Thank you. Christopher Lee, just briefly your thoughts on this. Uh, I think we ought to just remind ourselves that here we have Shia versus Sunni. Let's remind ourselves who is what, right? The Saudi Arabians, Saudi Arabia is, is, is basically a Sunni country, certainly a Sunni kingdom. Iran is Shia. Now, the two forces of Islam are, have been opposed for centuries, right? So when you get to a war, let's say Syria, you find that the leader of Syria is Shia. Therefore, Iran has taken on sides uh, with, 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 with Assad in Syria. You then get to another country, for example, what's going on in Iraq. The Iraqis are Shias. Therefore, the Saudis say, hang on, we are Sunnis. And so do not ignore the idea of what the difference between and why we come back right to the top to Lebanon is that the people that run Lebanon is Hezbollah. Mm. Hezbollah are Shias. Therefore, the Sunnis in Saudi Arabia say the Iranians are supporting them. Okay, Christopher, thank you. Now, tributes have been paid to a former World War II pilot who's died at the age of 94. Joy Lofthouse flew Spitfires and Hurricanes as a member of the Air Transport Auxiliary. She became one of only 166 female pilots who saw service. Here she is talking about her training to Forces Radio presenter Amy Casey at her home in Sirencester. Did you actually have your driving licence? No, I didn't. I was only 17 when, when war was declared. And anyway, not many people in those days had cars. It was all bicycle or public transport. 
There was no petrol to teach young girls to, to drive. Every gallon of petrol came across the Atlantic in the convoys. Thank goodness they didn't ask me at my interview. Well, I suppose it might have helped. I don't think I realised then, but I do realise now that I found far more difficult taxiing than I did flying. <laughs> because um, when the ground engineer would beckon you to where he wanted it parked, he would say, just park it just there, ma'am. And you weren't quite sure how much throttle to give it to get exactly there, yeah. which I think was lack of sort of spatial awareness that I would have got from having driven a car. But as I make people laugh saying, uh, I never knocked him down, so I suppose <laughs> it wasn't too bad. And that was Joy Lofthouse talking to Amy Casey, who sadly, she died yesterday, didn't she, Amy? Um, yes. What was she, she was a good friend of yours. What was she like? Yeah, she was an incredible lady. Uh, we, we became friends just from uh, from talking. Uh, I was researching Spitfire for 80 years of Spitfire. And, uh, and she was incredibly helpful. Joy by name, Joy by nature. She was a trailblazer for women's rights, but she was also very quick to remind me that all women did something during the war. And yes, she, she, was, to... she was, it was always quite mentioning that, wasn't she? Absolutely. She was incredibly proud of, of what women did during the war. She's and her a... motto for life was always to try, wasn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, that was the one message that she hoped that people would take away from any of our interviews and stories that we did together. All right, Amy, good to speak to you. And that is all we have time for this week. Join the conversation. Krista and I are live on the Forces News Facebook page on Thursdays from about 3.15 UK time. Today's video is already up, or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to a podcast. I'm Kate Both. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye.